Hello and welcome to episode three of The General Idea on a Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. Today, I have the fantastic Sally McLean on with me to talk about Shakespeare's history plays. An award-winning multi-hyphenate creative, Sally McLean began her work in the entertainment biz in her mid-teens as an actor and has since performed lead, guest and supporting roles in numerous Australian, US and UK film, theatre and television productions. A graduate of the Actors Institute UK, Sally's notable screen acting credits include the lead role of Angie Powers in the BAFTA award-winning BBC miniseries Bootleg, lead guest role of Stacey in the AACTA award-winning ABC TV series Utopia, and guest roles of Miss Giddens in the ABC CBBC TV series The Worst Year of My Life Again, and Barb in the USA Sony AMC TV series Preacher. Sally created her own boutique production business, Incognita Enterprises, under the honorary patronage of Oscar-nominated actor Sir Nigel Hawthorne KB CBE in 1997, an association that has continued until his passing in 2001. She is currently the creator, director, and lead ensemble member of the multi-award-winning digital series Shakespeare Republic, which has been officially selected and screened at over 110 international film festivals nominated for over 100 awards and won over 60 awards to date, including Best Director, Best Web Series, Best Actress for Sally personally, and Best Ensemble Cast in numerous festivals and industry awards. Her work with Shakespeare Republic has been the subject of several academic presentations and plenary panels at early modern literature and Shakespeare seminars and conferences in Australia, the UK and USA from 2016 to now. Her first published work on Shakespeare, an essay exploring her methodology behind Shakespeare Republic and Shakespeare performance in general, was published in the UK by Routledge Press in 2020 as part of the academic essay collection, Playfulness in Shakespearean Adaptations. The third series of Shakespeare Republic is currently being taught at Syracuse University, USA, and has been discussed in papers presented at the Shakespeare Association of America Conference and Britgrad Conference, and is also further explored in the Arden Shakespeare Collection, Lockdown Shakespeare, New Evolutions in Performance and Adaptations, published in July 2022. She additionally teaches Shakespeare as an industry guest teacher as part of the Howard Fine Acting Studio faculty in Melbourne, Australia. All that should tell you just how awesome and qualified this guest is to talk about these plays today. Thank you so much for joining me, Sally. Thank you so much, Annabelle. I'm so delighted to be here. The honour is all mine, I assure you. Now, to begin with, a question that I've been asking everyone so far, how did you first get into Shakespeare? Oh, that is such a great question. So my introduction to Shakespeare was fairly much, I think, the standard procedure for most people on the planet alive today that attend school. Uh, it was being handed a text in year eight of Romeo and Juliet. Now, normally, uh, this is going to be a little daunting for people that haven't been exposed prior to this to Shakespeare anyway, but it's even more daunting when, like me, you are dyslexic and you're suddenly handed a text <laughs> that's written in essentially a foreign language and told, you'll be reading that out loud, just four lines as part of what the class are going to do with reading out the text. Uh, to say there was blind panic would be an understatement. Anyway, by the time it got to me, I had been trying to work out which lines would be the four lines that I would be reading out to sort of pre-try and learn them if I could quickly in that half an hour. And of course, I got the wrong four lines. So I was reading lines that I hadn't been looking at and it was an absolute disaster. Um, 
I stood up, I stuttered my way through, I got told by the teacher to sit down and stop wasting the class's time. As a result of that rather humiliating experience, I completely wrote Shakespeare off. I had decided I wanted to be an actor at that point. I'd made that decision when I was about four. So uh, at age 13, I decided I would just be one of those actors that didn't do Shakespeare. There are people out there that don't do Shakespeare. I'll be one of them. And I didn't touch it again until I graduated high school. I was not, I didn't hate Shakespeare, but obviously I had a very visceral emotional sense memory around Shakespeare from that encounter. So I really did not wish to have anything to do with his works. And of course, then I went out and worked in the industry here on Australia and Melbourne for a while, and I was doing some film and television. I decided I should probably go do some training. So I applied to drama school in the UK. But of course, you need to do a Shakespeare piece to do that, don't you? So I actually uh, went to my drama teacher from high school who understood by sort of, I won't say repulsion to Shakespeare, but I guess that is probably a pretty good description, um, who said to me, all right, we're going to choose something that is not in the standard uh, collection of monologues that you would do for drama school. And so we chose a piece from Henry VIII, which was Queen Catherine's Sir, I Desire You Do Me Right and Justice speech. So I could sort of relate to that. I found a way in. And, and I was okay with it. Anyway, it must have been good enough because I got accepted into drama school. And, of course, then in drama school, more Shakespeare because it's drama school. And on top of that, I then got also handed literally out of a hat. They threw, we had to do a dissertation that year on a subject of a period of theatrical history or theatre history. And they threw all the different eras into a hat and we pulled them out. And that would be what we were writing about and I got Elizabethan theatre. <laughs> Just went, I hate the universe right now. What is going on? But it was my rather brilliant Shakespeare teacher at drama school who said to me, well, I don't know what you're complaining about. You have an enormous advantage on everybody else. You're living and working in the town or the city where Shakespeare lived and worked, which is London. So why don't you just go out and walk amongst the people in Southwark find the places that Shakespeare would have walked himself and literally step into his shoes. And so very reluctantly I was like, oh, all right, yes, okay, that's a good point. So off I went. Now this is going to show how old I am, but it was actually at the time that the Globe Theatre was being rebuilt. And so I thought, well, I guess as a drama school student, I can reach out and say, can I get into the venue while you're building? Is that safe? Um, and because it was pretty much almost complete at that point, they were very, very kind and they let me into the building. And I happened to be there when there was an architect and some of the, the builders were there having a big discussion about where the pillars were meant to go on the stage because, as I learned, there's no actual written record of where those pillars actually were placed during Shakespeare's time. So there was a big conversation going on about should they be further towards the audience, should they be further back, how big should the canopy be? And because I was this random drama student roaming around, they included me in the conversation. They said, oh, can we help you? And I said, oh, I'm just here to sort of soak up the atmosphere. I'm writing a dissertation about Elizabethan theatre. And they said, oh, great. Well, we're having a conversation about the pillars. So we got talking. And at some point um, they said to me, do you want to go stand on the stage? And I went, uh, yeah, <laughs> am I allowed to do that? And they said, yeah, sure. And 
what was going on in the, in the venue at the time was there were people still working on building it. So they were doing the finishing touches. So there were people up on the roof doing hand thatching of the thatch. There were people hand turning balustrades and balcony railings and things. They were trying to actually build it as they built it in Elizabethan times. It was extraordinary to watch these craftsmen at work. So they're all doing their thing there. And you've got a couple of the builders and, and the architect on the floor and they're saying, get on the stage. It's fine, you know. Well, that'll help us actually if we can see someone up there to sort of get an idea of where you know further the conversation about the pillars and I was like okay so I got on the stage and I turned around and I looked out at that extraordinary building and all of those balconies and watching these craftspeople working on completing it and just that space and it was as if a portal suddenly opened to Shakespeare's time it it was I, I can't really describe it. It was quite extraordinary. It was as if I'd stepped back to Elizabethan England. And I'm sort of stood there a little dumbstruck. And one of the guys in the group said, well, you're an actor. Why don't you just do a soliloquy or something? <laughs> and, of course, I'm not quite a Shakespeare convert at this point. So I said to them, I don't really have a soliloquy off the top of my head, but I could sing something because my background's musical theatre. And they said, okay, great, sing something. You can get a sense of the acoustics. And so I stood there and sang the first two verses of Amazing Grace. Oh, I get goosebumps even talking about it. Just even just doing that, it was the most extraordinary moment to feel my voice filling that space. And it was as if the space spoke back to me. I, I can't describe it any other way. It was really quite a mystical kind of moment. And I finished and I stopped and the space went quiet and I realised everybody had stopped working in the venue, which was a little embarrassing because I hadn't thought about it. And bless them, they gave me a standing ovation, all 15 people or whatever it was in the space. And in that moment, that was when I suddenly understood that Shakespeare was a real person, that he'd lived, that he was expressing how he saw the world and the people that he knew through these works, that they had all been real people or influenced by real people. That moment brought Shakespeare to life for me in such an extraordinarily deep and life-changing way that I became a convert pretty much in that moment and after that just started devouring absolutely everything to do with Shakespeare. Uh, wrote the dissertation, passed, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> did well with my, with my score with that and I just, yeah, I just became an absolute convert. What was really interesting is the language which I had struggled with up until that point it's almost as if that unlocked the language for me as well. I honestly don't quite know what osmosis it was that took place, but all of a sudden I could understand Shakespeare's language. And so I became a born-again Shakespearean. <laughs> and like any good born-again person, you run off and convert the world. So that was that was my, my major moment. That was when I really suddenly discovered Shakespeare. And so uh, I was I graduated drama school. I went off and did a, a short film, which was nothing to do with Shakespeare. Um, and someone said to me, oh, you should probably get an honorary patron because it's a thing. 
And of course, because I'd been devouring all the Shakespeare stuff, I was like, oh, yeah, they had that in Shakespeare's times. You know, they had to. That's the only way they could survive was having a patron. So I reached out to a couple of, of English actors that I admired and Sir Nigel Hawthorne was the one who came back to say, I really love what you're doing and uh, I would be very happy to support you which was amazing and, of course, opened another door into the Shakespeare world because, of course, he was a Royal Shakespeare Company member and and uh, had a very talented Shakespearean actor in his own right. So he gave me, again, on top of what my rather brilliant Shakespeare teacher at drama school had given me, gave me more insights into Shakespearean performance. And then I went to work. I'd worked for the BBC prior um, to going to drama school and my boss, Rolly Keating, rang me up to say, uh, so you've graduated drama school. Are you free to come back and work on a new project? And I went, yeah, because the phone was not ringing off the hook, even though, you know, we'd graduated. It doesn't work like that. So I was needed to earn some cash. So I said, sure. So I went back to work with Rolly. And again, through we were setting up what, what was called the BBC Commercial Channels. They're now called UKTV. That's the UKTV suite of channels. But again, we were dealing with a lot of arts programming. I was getting to see a lot more of the Shakespeare stuff. And so I started to say to Nigel, I really think there's a there's some there's some use in doing essentially bite-sized Shakespeare, a way to create these little worlds with Shakespeare's text that open the door for people who might not like who might not want to engage with a full play. Is there a, you know, I, I just I'm doing it for screen as well. Is there a way that we think we could do that? And we talked about it a little bit, and Nigel just we both came to the conclusion that there was just nowhere to house that, and no one was likely to commission that because short pieces means three to four minutes, and you know you'd need to do a full hour for television, for example. And back then, web series didn't exist. So anyway, that idea came up, and it got shelved. And then 2015 came around and it was one of Shakespeare's big anniversaries and I was working on another project and just needed a break and thought, oh, I had that Shakespeare idea. Maybe we could play with that and see where that goes. And so that's when Shakespeare Republic was born because web series suddenly existed. We could do short form. You could put it on YouTube and you've got an audience. So that was that was how Shakespeare Republic came to be. And that's where I really got, I'd, I'd acted in Shakespeare since drama school. I sort of played about as assistant director in Shakespeare before for theatre predominantly. Um, I'd done one, one short film that was kind of poking fun at really bad Shakespeare. <laughs> it happens when you work in the Shakespeare world. It happens. Um, so that was a bit cathartic, but I'd never actually taken Shakespeare's text and seriously looked at how would that work if you took it into the modern context. And that's what Shakespeare Republic was. And so that was in 2015 and the rest, as they say, is history. We've now had three seasons of Shakespeare Republic. We've had the one spin-off of Speaking Daggers, which was done in 2017, which was commissioned by the Independent Schools um, of Victoria Association to be used in schools. And now we're working uh, on, I've I've done another series, which is called Walking Shadows, which is again more Shakespeare in a modern context, working with my students at Howard Fine Acting Studio. And we're just in pre-production for Dark Arcadia, which is another spin-off from Shakespeare Republic, which should be shooting, fingers crossed, uh, at the end of June. So it's all Shakespeare now. My life is completely Shakespeare. So I went from that 13-year-old who was like, never touching it again, not going anywhere near it. And here we are now when that is pretty much at the moment all I'm actually doing. So that's that's how I came to Shakespeare and, and, and how I discovered it. It was actually being 
in that venue where, you know, he performed his works and it all just came to life in this most incredibly magical way. Shakespeare's magic, what can I say? And I'm living proof of that. (laughs) It's absolutely magic. That story is wonderful. I mean, I think that's one of the best parts of doing this podcast, hearing all these amazing stories of how people came to love these works. It's such a magical thing to listen to and obviously to experience secondhand through the narrative. It's honestly, I love it. It's brilliant. And as you said, yeah, the rest is history. And speaking of history, (laughs) that brings us neatly to today's topic. Yes. So how, how did you first develop interest in Shakespeare's history plays? Because they're obviously, I mean, they're the ones that people don't tend to talk about as much. Yeah. There's a lot of focus on comedy and tragedy. Right. I don't really get it. I sort of get it. I suppose, I think that the reason that the history plays are kind of treated a bit like the ugly stepchild, I mean, they're not at all, but I think people shy away from them, is because it's history and people tend to get a little glazed over when you use the word history. Not everybody, but... Our society is so focused on the now and the future that I think we forget how important history is. I am the opposite. I am all about history. Any of, and it's funny because again, I wasn't really through high school and it wasn't, I think again, Shakespeare. I can thank Shakespeare and the Globe Theatre and all of that experience for suddenly being obsessed with history as well. The irony being my father was an historian, (laughs) so I should be really into it. But I don't know, that that child thing of striking out on my own in my own direction. But I have grown, particularly through my adult life, to have an enormous respect for the study of history and how important it is to us in the present. I think, and that's that's again why I think I'm drawn to the history plays, if we don't know our history, we then are doomed to repeat its mistakes in the present and the future. That's why the history is important. It's actually a shortcut to not making the same mistakes. And sadly, we don't learn collectively as, in, as, a, as, a, as a race, the human race. We just don't learn. I mean, you just have to look at the pandemic recently. There are so many parallels between what happened in the 1919 Spanish flu uh, pandemic or epidemic to now. Everything from people not wanting to wear masks to declaring the pandemic was over before it was over. You just go, wait a minute, this happened. And it dragged out that pandemic for two years more than it probably needed to be. And you just go, are we doing this again? It's it's literally, it's 100 years ago. It's not that long ago. But we are geared to not look back. And putting history on stage, writing history plays, was a way of bringing the past into the present and making it relevant. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was one of those people who didn't read the histories. I didn't read the history plays until I was 14 with The Show Must Go Online when I was doing fan art weekly for every production. Of course, in order to do fan art, you need to know the play. Yes. So every week it was Annabelle, sit down, read the whole play in one sitting and draw something. I love you did that. Yes, exactly. But again, I mean, all of this is the thing, all of my work and any non-Shakespeare work. So I also write, I'm also a writer. All of my work is tied to history. I have a World War II story at the moment that I was developing as a series, but I'm actually now developing as a book. But that's totally set in World War II, but it's been chosen because there are parallels to the present that we can learn from. 
I'm doing a documentary based on on a very well-known athletics figure who was height of his his powers in the 1950s. But again, it's because there are lessons we can learn from that in the present. And Shakespeare, I think, was doing, not that I'm, I'm not aligning myself with Shakespeare as a writer, but I think that's what he was doing absolutely, as you say, with his history plays, taking these stories from history and holding up the mirror and going, look familiar? <laughs> Is there something you might need to pay attention to that happened here that we're doing now? But also he gave us a special kind of history. He gave us history through his historical lens. That's right. Which naturally means that we can't exactly rely on them as a definitive source. No, we can't. <laughs> well, he was a writer and he was a creative writer, so there's going to be dramatic license taken a lot. The thing about that, though, events were documented, historical timelines were documented, there may have been the odd letter floating around from these people who actually lived. And certainly there was testimony from if they were kings or queens, there would have been speeches recorded and that kind of thing. But that doesn't necessarily tell you who they really were as people. And that was his great gift, was taking these people and making them human. Not figureheads, not war leaders. They were, they were also that. But then he would make them human. So he would look at them and go, well, what was driving them? I do think he pulled a lot. I mean, he obviously used Hollandshed. There's a lot of other writers of prehistory before his time that he referred to. And again, that wasn't always exactly accurate either. Yeah. Um, but he would pull from the different sources he had access to. But then he would decide, okay, well, then why did they do that? What was motivating this choice? Why did they end up being so inspirational or remembered as being so? Why were they thought of as being so evil? What was it that they did? And he then built or fleshed them out as full characters, gave them all the frailties, all the insecurities, all the glories that we all have as humans individually in our own selves. But that's where we get the inconsistencies, obviously. They certainly did things in his plays that they probably did not do in real life at all, but they were done as a, well, they could have done this. <laughs> and that helps us then get to the next event. I mean, he would obviously condense time. You kind of have to. You're doing a theatre thing. You're not going to have people there. Well, he did try with, not that Hamlet's a history play, but he did try with Hamlet. But you're not going to have people sitting quietly there for 12 hours necessarily. So he would condense time. But I like to think, he hit all the high notes of the actual history and then just filled it in the blanks with, with entertaining, authentic characters, which is what made them so popular. Because they were popular in their time. They definitely were. That's why he wrote so many of them. Absolutely, yeah. They were very popular in their time, more popular than many of his other plays, which may surprise us now. But I think, thinking about what you said, I think one of the reasons why the histories are not as popular is because they're real because the events depicted actually happened and we are sometimes faced with the uncomfortable truth of our past, of our history, of where we have come from. The comedies and tragedies, we can say, oh, look at these people, look at the terrible things they did, oh, that's awful, or look how silly these people are being. In history plays, we are confronted with, you know, people who did silly or horrible things, but were real. And that is a jarring notion. Oh, he definitely contested the idea 
<laughs> many ideas, but contested the idea of the monarch monarch is always right, which is actually quite subversive for the time. <laughs> Considering Elizabeth I was pretty good at throwing people in the tower, but interestingly did not throw him in the tower, although, well, she didn't throw him in the tower for the works that we have in existence, although Eastwood Ho apparently, which he's rumoured to have been a part of, was considered quite subversive and did earn him apparently a small turn in being looked at as possibly treasonous, which probably warned him off from being too obvious about, about the commentary. That I don't know if it, it's not it's it's disputed whether he was, but that play was something that was a bit apparently a little bit too subversive. So he just got clever with it, which obviously far too clever for the master of the rebels because they they let them go through and be performed, which is very interesting because he did contest the idea of divine right of kings. Richard the second, a hundred percent. Which there is the story of Elizabeth. I mean, again, not documented in a way that can be fully um, authenticated, but she actually made the comment when there was a plot against her and it was the Earl of Oxford that actually paid for for the, a production of Richard II to be played the night he was going to actually turn against her and try and kick her off the throne. The Earl of Essex, yeah? I think it was Essex, yes. Sorry, thank you for correcting me. Essex, that's right, one of her favourites, which would have been devastating for her. She turned to someone and said, I am Richard II. Yeah, I've heard of that. And that, yeah, that is an example of what we're talking about, isn't it? Of, you know, history holding up the mirror. And it and it is interesting that, I mean, she loved the theatre. That's what I, Elizabeth, I love Queen Elizabeth I. I think she was an extraordinary human, mm. really was. Smart, smart woman. I, I find her so intriguing. Obviously also had her faults, but goodness, the fact she held on to power as long as she did in the way that she did and that it's still talked about as the golden age. It may not have been. When you look at the history closely, it's like, hmm, there was some stuff done there that we probably, again, don't like to look at because it wasn't all great from a modern perspective. But from their perspective, you know, she was she was extraordinary. But it is interesting that, yeah, so therefore she was. these plays were getting performed and clearly she didn't think it applied to her. Very interesting, though, that she obviously would have felt that Richard II was a commentary about betrayal, you know, being un- misunderstood, all of that stuff. I find it fascinating that they let it go through. I, I do find it really interesting because he does. He contests that idea, but he also contests the idea of the class system who, you know, you'll see characters that are not top of the level aristocracy that have got a good, strong heart, good morals, good ethics, and then you see the aristocracy behaving in terrible ways and you just kind of go, wow, and again, that was lapped up by everybody. I find it so interesting. And I don't know if they, if they again, because it was history, maybe that's why he got away with it, because they could say, oh, that happened in the past. He's talking about people from the past, not necessarily people now. Exactly. But he was so talking about people now <laughs> in his time. Precisely. He can talk about, like, he could write about monarchs that weren't so great and say, like, look how this person messed up compared to our current queen. That's right. Look how good she is compared to these people. That's absolutely correct. Whereas actually, it might be, yeah, a subtle criticism on what was going on at the time. You're talking about the class system, and I obviously think of Jack Cade and Henry VI. He's a great example. Yep, absolutely. And loved by audiences, apparently, that character. Yeah. Again, riots in the street, anyone? Like, it's, it's really interesting. But again... I guess the way that it could be justified is that I'm talking about history, not talking about now. But I think he 
I think I like to think that he was definitely holding up a mirror to now using the histories as a way to say this is what happened in the past and either this is a bad thing or maybe you should think about this as something you should do now. Yeah. And I find that fascinating that he got away with that. But I think that's also people may not have consciously realised that's what he was doing. Some people might, but not everyone. But I think people subconsciously got it or subliminally got it. That's why they were so popular. Yeah. And they, they loved those hero characters like Jack Cade and others. Absolutely, Falstaff. Falstaff's another yeah. one that's fascinating as a character. We love him. I mean, and then he got his own spin-off comedy, didn't he? Yes, I know. He got The Merry Wives. <laughs> he did. Except he didn't actually get The Merry... He, he did not get The Merry Wives, but, you know... Correct. He got the play. He got the play, right? That's the first case, I think, in the history of, of modern theatre of a fan-driven sequel getting written or prequel getting written because of the fact that, yeah, it was a fan demand to have him back. They were demanding Falstaff and he's like, I've killed him. <laughs> what do I do? I'll create this prehistory. This is what went on prior. It's hilarious. Yeah, that that was that's extraordinary too. I, I love that. But again, Falstaff was based on Oldcastle, who was apparently family were not happy. There is actually, I think, I think there's a one reference left in the script in modern days to him, which is why people know, apart from the description yes. of the character. But yeah, the family apparently was so upset <laughs> he had to change it. I love it. it makes me laugh. Uh, and yeah. Exactly. That's possibly a sign of Shakespeare's social criticism becoming more obvious. Yeah. Getting past the master of the revels because, you know, it's not insulting the queen. That's right. So, like, okay, okay, let it slide. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And then you get one of the aristocratic families going, excuse me, what are you saying about our forefather? Yeah, immediately has to be changed. Which, you know, again, he's not an idiot. I mean, Shakespeare was a, a complete politician as well. He knew, like, He'd pushed the envelope, but he also knew when uh, when to give up a fight. That there was I don't think there was even a fight. It was just change the name as soon as there was a complaint because they all relied so much on patronage, obviously, too. Um, if you have one family that's well-connected getting upset with what a company is doing, you do not want them influencing your patron to withdraw support. So that would have been a political decision. Yeah, it's all these complicated social webs. Once again, it's all tangled up. And I, I believe in Richard III, Margaret calls Richard a bottled spider. And we see Richard weave his webs throughout the whole play with the wooing of Lady Anne, which yes. God knows how that even works, but it does. Yes, I know. Fascinating character, Richard. Yeah, fascinating character. I think one of the reasons that that play is so popular is because it's so often interpreted as a tragedy. Because, you know, Richard after doing all these Machiavellian wicked things, at the end, he has his soliloquy, Richard loves Richard, that is, I am I, alas, I rather hate myself. All of these things he says, yeah, is there a murderer here? Yes, no, and he's conflicted with himself. And that is the turning point. That is, you know, when he realises the tragedy of who he has become, the tragedy of fulfilling the role that he thinks society condemns him to play. Because when we first meet him, he is nothing like that in the early Henry plays. Yeah. He's nothing like that in the early Henry plays. He is actually, well, he can be played with with the foreshadowing of that, but 
he's written as actually very open and wanting to be accepted and wanting to be seen for being valuable as to who he is. And he's not being Machiavellian. And you watch, if you read, again, it's interesting, the whole, all the Henry plays are fascinating, but but those leading up to Richard III, just watching the way he starts to, as you say, totally ends up just buying in to what the world thinks of him. He says it, you know, I'm going to play the villain. It is what he's going to do because he can't, find meaning or be seen in any other way so he's just going to embrace what everyone else has thought of him and said of him prior to that and that's the tragedy as well because he could have been and a mate according to Shakespeare's telling of it an extraordinary king in the best possible way but he's never seen for his good qualities ever so he kills them precisely and then we end up with Richard the third the play yeah and i i had someone point out to me on twitter recently that in the henry the sixth plays richard the third would be a teenager he would be like 18 and that's a really important point in your life i mean i'm 17 i should know <laughs> it's yeah it's really formative the way that society views you especially in that position in that place in the aristocracy the way society views you would have been you know integral to who he was and in Shakespeare's time, disability or deformity was viewed as equivalent to moral corruptness, which obviously is complete balderdash, and it was very ableist, and there's a lot of discussion about that now. But it just shows you that Richard, you know, he's been born this way, and he, because society views him as corrupt just because of the way he looks, he decides, fine, I don't even have the energy to fight your expectations. I'm just going to be who you're forcing me to be that's right and I'll enjoy it because that's the only pleasure I'm going to get it's tragic it is totally tragic yeah but again you made it's also subversive but you made that point earlier that the histories aren't really histories <laughs> I mean they are but they're not yeah when you look at the real Henry real Richard III there's not really any talk of him being evil or Machiavellian or horrible there's not even any real mention of a deformity exactly little bit that he had a slightly hunched shoulder, but that's because the scoliosis. I actually have scoliosis, so, you know, I, I get this. I, I have the same problem of quite a strong curvature in my spine, but unless I told somebody, mind you, I also have the benefits of modern science to keep my spine relatively straight as it can be. But you don't really notice if you dress a certain way as well to hide that slight thing. So... It's interesting that, again, Shakespeare's information came from an earlier source that had sort of exaggerated, I suspect. The only thing that you kind of find in the history is that what did happen to the princes? That probably was Richard III that got rid of them, which is not great, but was how it used to work and has done right down to antiquity as far as any kind of other claimants to the throne. If you can't negotiate, you remove permanently but the same goes for his brother and there's there's no evidence that he actually killed his brother it's it's interesting a lot of it has come from hearsay and collective memory and not so reliable sources yeah and Shakespeare was writing a Tudor version of history he was writing a version that favored Richmond that favored the guy literally nobody remembers a single line of his from the play nobody remembers that's right it's a shadow of a role 
compared to Richard. Yeah. But then we have that great scene where, you know, the ghosts of the people Richard has murdered come to visit him and Richmond. We have the past coming back on stage, informing the present, and Shakespeare used that device in his tragedies. He would go on to use that in Hamlet, for instance. And that is what gets the whole play moving. It's the essence of history that makes it work. He does the same. He does the same in the Scottish play. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. The Scottish play, oh, that's another personal bugbear, but that's in the tragedy, so I won't necessarily go there. Except the fact that I'm really glad it's in the tragedies and not the histories because that is total fabrication um, based oh, yeah. on real people. I've actually stood at Macca's grave and apologised to him for Shakespeare's play. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was about to go into a production of it. So there was a reason I was trying to hedge my bets a bit, like, please don't curse this production. But I think that's why that production's cursed, I've decided, because it's such a fabrication on the reality. Yeah. I mean, listeners, if you're interested in that, listen to my episode with Danielle Farrow from season two, because we have a lot of talk about the historical inaccuracies in Macbeth, because that is it is so wrong. So, so wrong. many. And, and Danielle is perfectly placed to talk about that, it being Scots. But yeah, it's just extraordinary. But again, fantastic story and serious kudos for the writing there. But Richard III is kind of similar in a way. Because he was so reviled, because of the Tudor attitude at the time, because of who he was, because of the lineage he belonged to, Shakespeare could go for broke, essentially, about how Machiavelli and he became. But what is really interesting is it's not beyond the realms of possibility that the real Richard III could have gone that way and harboured some of those thoughts and feelings because there was this, any, as you say, any deformity especially in the royal line, would be seen as some sort of affiliation to the devil. So there may have been, even within his family, a kind of reluctance around him yeah. because he wasn't perfect. You can believe that someone could go from one that one extreme to the other. So I, I don't think Shakespeare was being untrue to human nature when he wrote Richard III. I, I agree. I thoroughly agree. It's such a sad play because from the very first monologue, you know, now is the winter of our discontent. He talks about, you know, how his family, the Yorkists have brought peace, relative peace. But the fact is there's never going to be true peace for him because in peacetime, peacetime in a play is comedy, right? It's comedy, it's marriage, it's regeneration. Richard talks about how he cannot play a lover. He cannot cape nimbly to a lady's chamber. Maybe he physically can't do that uh, the way Shakespeare writes him. Maybe he can't. And maybe emotionally he can't either because he's also been a warrior and on the war front for most of his life. So there's, there's possibly double level of that too. It's not just physical. It could be emotional. It could be mental. Yeah. Yeah. And societal, of course, because he's not, viewed as the kind of person who gets to fulfill that role yeah and so <laughs> one of the greatest villains of Shakespeare's canon is born yeah out of history out of the historical context that Shakespeare wrote about and Shakespeare wrote within absolutely and I th and I think again there probably were if it wasn't a, a monarch but there were certainly would have been people 
because it was a time of war, even in the Tudor times, obviously. You know, Spain was constantly on the horizon, France, Mm -hmm. everybody in that region. There were probably people who were exactly like Richard, who fought through injury and battle or whatever other reason to come back and did not fit anymore. Shakespeare writes his characters, even in, you know, in the histories as well as all the other genres, with such authenticity that I I just, yeah, I just wonder who he knew or who he'd seen or who he'd heard about. Yeah, it makes you think. Because they're definitely, right? Because they're And he would have come across returned veterans and others. He would have seen this in other people. He was such a good observer of human nature. And at some point that sparked the idea for Richard and, and how he how he could justify what people believed of Richard at that point, why he did what he did. Yeah, Richard was a villain because the Tudors had to be heroes. That's that's the long and the short of it. And that possibly explains Henry VIII, which is <laughs> barely history. <laughs> that is just, wow. Talk about a puff piece. Like, I love it. I love yeah. it. All is true. Really? 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 I actually, I like to think that Shakespeare gave it that subtitle out of complete irony. Like it's not, it's, he's not meaning a word of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like Twelfth Night and What You Will. Right. It's just like, seriously, look at this. Like all is true. Right. I think he's, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he's having a joke. I do think he's having a bit of a tongue in cheek moment there um, because he would have known that it is not true. It's also a very nice way to sort of bow down to the current regime <laughs> to say all is true. See, look, I'm part of the propaganda machine. But yeah, I mean, that's some of that's really on the nose. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a bit much. That final scene with Elizabeth, I just wow. Okay, it feels yeah, feels a little little forced. I've got to confess to what Shakespeare normally writes. But at the same time, he also gave us such a beautiful portrait of Queen Catherine and a woman totally cast aside and a stranger in her own land, as it, as it had become at that point. It was her own land at that point and a stranger in her own land. I, that That is, she's extraordinary. She's one of my favourites. <laughs> I am so glad I got to play her for Show Must Go Online because... Yes, of course. Oh, I remember I drew... I, I drew the scene in which Catherine dies. Yeah, I drew that scene. You did, which was beautiful. Made me get very teary. It was lovely. Catherine, I mean, she's such an interesting, again, for a play that was supposed to honour Elizabeth, it's so interesting that Catherine's really the hero. Yeah, Catherine, you know, Catholic, not Protestant at all, Catherine, you know, the woman shoved aside for the Reformation. I mean, obviously Shakespeare couldn't write about this in Elizabeth's time. <laughs> he had to write it after she was dead. He had to write it during King James's reign. He couldn't have done that. He couldn't have written such another powerful female in the reign of yes. a powerful woman. Yes. Oh, absolutely not. And definitely not the one that, that Elizabeth's mother usurped. I mean, <laughs> that's, whoa, that would have been seditious as all get out. Like, yeah. no, no, no. It's an interesting, it is really interesting with, with Henry VIII that the other reason I think it couldn't have been done in Elizabeth's time is I'm quite sure that Elizabeth had daddy issues and I would not blame her. Henry VIII was not the best dad. 
by a long shot. Ooh, no, he was I not. Mean, he he killed not. her mum. Let's let's just put it out there. He did, along with others, right? Yeah. So it's a really interesting, that's a really interesting piece that, again, I think was probably written to, because, you know, the playhouses, they, they could be propaganda. They weren't above doing it. And, and as we know, Shakespeare and many of his contemporaries did it because, well, you could write a good story and still pro- and, and and support the monarchy at the same time. But I do wonder if Henry VIII was also written to give further legitimacy to James. Yeah, yeah. And reminding them of Henry VIII, who, yeah, not all great points, but gave them the sort of the sort of happy showreel highlights of Henry VIII to sort of say there was a great time then and now we have James and we're going to continue with a great time. Yeah. One other history I want to quickly mention Yes. is King John. Yes. Because that's a kind of standalone history play. The others all kind of form a sequence. But King John stands on its own and I'm, I'm particularly interested in it because I directed and acted in a production of it last year with my best friend, Fenna Capella, and I played Arthur. I played young Prince Arthur, and that got me, like, we were talking about these social connections, this web of entanglement earlier, and this play really, really elucidates how Arthur is stuck in all of this, Mm. how he is, he has become a political pawn. He is... Like, he he is a potential heir to the throne, but he's been made a pawn. It's awful. Arthur's story is so sad. But again, really, again, and this is is an interesting part from the history play perspective of Tudor history being very much still in line with the history of the time when King John lived. You can, it's almost a commentary on the fact that Children particularly, children and women, but children are just an accident of birth and you can become this pawn in this powerful political game and have no agency at all. You think you do. You think as someone who's heir to the throne they would have some agency and yet no, none. It's totally controlled. It was a really interesting commentary again on the fact that absolute power doesn't necessarily mean absolute power until you actually hold the throne and even then you probably still don't have absolute power. You're still having to, as Richard II shows us, you still have to deal with all these other forces. But, yeah, Arthur, his Arthur's story. I directed the wonderful Laura Gardner in um, as, as Constance um, in season three of Shakespeare Republic. Oh, she just does the most heart-rending. Oh, it's just beautiful. But it is. It's, it also talks about a mother's grief and a mother's a mother's ambition that goes so horribly wrong. Yes, it talks about, you know, how these historical figures, these events of the past that were so instrumental to the present, they were performed by people. These were people. These were families. There was love amidst the power struggle. That's it. And we see that with Margaret of Anjou as well, with her relationship with Sussex. And that's just, it's, it's such a beautiful story. And again, I've talked about that with Danielle because that was one of her picks for characters of Shakespeare's plays. And I just wanted to come back to Arthur because he talks many times about how he wishes he weren't a prince. He wishes how, that he wasn't in this position. He even says, I would I were low laid in my grave. Yes. He is so tired of it all. 
And we have a similar thing in Henry VI, I believe, do we not? He also talks about how he doesn't want, like he would give anything to, I think he talks about being a shepherd, doesn't he? Yes. Yes, he wants to be a shepherd. Yes. I can't remember the exact quote right now, but yes. Same actually, again, you have with Richard II. Uh, It's a recurring theme. It is a recurring theme, which I think, again, is an extraordinary insight into those in power because, you know, they would all have moments, and I'm sure people in power today have the same moments where they just want to be able to walk away from it all. And I think that that is extraordinarily insightful. And for audiences at the time in the Elizabethan period, that would have very much humanised them and made them feel more relatable because they would have had moments like that in their lives too. I don't want to be an apprentice to a glove maker anymore. I don't want to be a tanner. I don't yeah. want to be, do you know what I mean? I want, I want to, a different I want to life. be able to be anything other than myself. Yeah. But of course we all, we're all trapped in this singularity of experience. That's just life. And so he was saying that will happen at the highest level as well as at your level. So look, you guys are actually the same. Yeah. And I think to to finish off, I want to talk about that one scene in Richard the Sixth, but not Richard, Henry the Sixth, in which uh, yes. there's an old man who has killed his son and a son who has killed his father, and they come on stage, and we have this conflict of generations, and I think that comes to the crux of what the history plays are about. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. You know, past, the present, and the future coming together in the presence of the king as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He gets to see all of this. I mean, it's magical. It is truly fascinating. And it it does show that scene particularly, which is a great choice. It does show, I think, as much as we say Shakespeare is kind of not in the plays, as in we don't really know much about him, obviously, from what he wrote. We kind of do. (laughs) We kind of do if we look at it from the messages that we're getting. Now, as a writer myself, you might write something, and you, you get this too, Annabelle, because I know you, you write too. You might write something and people will go, oh, my goodness, I love how you did whatever. And you go, I did I? <laughs> didn't, I didn't know I put that in there. That must be subconscious. Yeah. I didn't realise. Glad you got that out of right? Glad you got I that. Know. Don't know if it did. But I think, and that will have happened in some of Shakespeare's works, but I think there are so many themes and messages that are so clear if you look at it a certain way that, he may not have deliberately written them in there to start with, but he definitely then played upon or riffed upon them once he realised himself what he'd written. And that particular scene is definitely one of them that's very much sort of summing up, I think, how he was presenting history generally to everybody in all those plays. It's talking about, as you say, generational clash. It's talking about learning from the past It's talking about know your past so that you can have your future. And that scene is heartbreaking. And the fastest way to get an emotion, get a human being to remember something is to use emotion. Yeah. And that's what Shakespeare does. He humanizes history. Yes. And yeah, what you just said, that pokes at the very foundation of literary criticism, doesn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. That's what's fun. Yeah. It's looking at Shakespeare as a historical writer not just as you know not of an age for, but for all time but of as a product of his society he's sort of sort of writer that as i said was a politician in the sense he was not an idiot he knew there was only certain things he could say and do 
But I really think that he also saw himself, and the histories are a good example of that, of trying to leave a legacy of his own that left a, a positive footprint in the world and a positive pointer in the world of how he hoped the world might learn and grow and evolve and using the histories to show mistakes of the past and therefore putting them on a stage to say this is how you can avoid making these mistakes in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a great point to wrap up with. Thank you so much for discussing this with me, Sally. This is fascinating. Thank you, Annabelle. I've had a great time. Me too. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. We could keep talking forever about this, I think. But yeah, oh gosh, I miss yeah. so much more. But you know, that look, just simply go and watch some history plays of Shakespeare's people. Yeah, go watch the histories, people. Listeners, go check them out. For now, Sally, how about you tell the listeners where they can find you? Oh, right. Well, you can probably, the best place to go, if you want to see the Shakespeare Republic work, you can head to shakespeareRepublic.com and that will have links to everything that's been going on in that in that world. Uh, and my production website is incognita enterprises, one word, .com, where you'll find out what's happening prior, what's happening now and what's happening in the future, just to tie it back into the theme. Um, and you'll find all of my socials are attached through there. If you look for me on Twitter and Instagram as Incognita Gal and just look up Sally McLean on Facebook and you'll find me there. Do check her out. She's amazing. I think this conversation has proven that to you. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you in a moment in the Teenager's Tape. Welcome to The Teenager's Take. Thank you so much for such a brilliant conversation, Sally. So many ideas were covered here that it's something of a Herculean feat to try and sum them all up. But I've done my best to give you the key ideas. First of all, Shakespeare's histories break down societal systems of monarchy, aristocracy and class division into families and interpersonal units. It's only when we care about the relationship between Henry IV and Hal as father and son that we care about them as monarch and heir. And nowhere is this distinction better illustrated than between Hal and Falstaff, a pseudo-father-son duo that parody the king in turn in the tavern in Eastcheap. Similarly, we don't really empathise with Richard II in the early scenes of his play, because that's all pomp and circumstance. We empathise with Gaunt and Bolingbroke and the pain of parting that comes with the latter's banishment. We feel for Richard when his identity as king slips away from him, when he acknowledges the hollow crown, wants to talk of graves, epitaphs and wills and choose executors, and presents his loneliness stunningly to the emptiness of a prison cell. This solitude, I imagine, is part of what Queen Elizabeth alluded to in the quote Sally mentioned, in which she identified with Richard. In Richard III, it's when he realises his own atrocities that we love him most and feel nothing for the rather bland Richmond, who is supported, admittedly, by the ghosts of Richard's murder victims. Perhaps it's through our grief for them that Shakespeare sought to evoke our sympathy. But somehow, it's with the murderer that our loyalties lie. Margaret of Anjou doesn't love Henry VI, but she grieves him and her sons strongly and her vituperative hatred for Richard is unforgettable. By humanising history and painting its actors with love, grief, hatred, regret and terror, Shakespeare points out an important detail that may be part of what makes these histories somewhat daunting. People like us performed these chapters of the past, 
and the book hasn't closed yet. The tragedy of battles in which soldiers die and power balances are altered is clearest in Northumberland's reaction to Hotspur's death in Henry IV Part II, and the scene in Henry VI Part III that we discussed, in which a father laments the son he killed, and a son grieves the father he slew. The Tudor lens inevitably skewed the history plays to some extent, to the extent, in fact, that a society was set up in defence of the historical Richard III from, in their words, the evil caricature of Tudor propaganda. I think we all know what that means. As I said, Richard had, at any rate, to be a villain, so Richmond, and by delineation the Tudors, could be heroes. In the entire play of Henry VIII as well, it's a celebration of the most recent significant kingship, one might say, in English history prior to James. Its historical proximity dictated its dramatic presentation, and I agree with Sally that all is true is somewhat tongue-in-cheek. The final scene with baby Elizabeth plays into nostalgia for the so-called golden age of Queen Elizabeth I, and she's a significant presence in all of the history plays as, I'd like to say, a constructive agent. When Shakespeare wrote Bad Monarchs, I think his way of getting them past the censor was by implying that these plays show how bad other rulers were compared to their queen, highlighting her power in contrast. When he wrote Good Monarchs, he made bolder political references such as the not-so-subtle hints to the Irish campaign in Henry V. We can learn a lot about Shakespeare's own time, therefore, by looking at how he portrayed distant times. Perhaps one of the reasons Shakespeare did not write about the Magna Carta in King John was because conveying such a thing on stage might be viewed as criticising the monarchy or subtly inferring that rebellion could be significantly effective. At any rate, it would not have gotten past the censor. Overall, Shakespeare's history plays tell us a lot about several different historical periods. A modern performance will tell you about three. The fictional historical setting through narrative, the time in which the play was written through the words, and our own age through performative interpretation. Consider this next time you go to see one of these fabulous dramas performed. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. Do check us out on Instagram at A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare, and on Twitter at Teen Take Shacks, and get ready for next week's conversation on problem plates. Bye for now!